I can't see a thing up here. Mr. Steve is hiding from me behind this pulpit. I never know when he's through or when he's starting, so I just sort of have to feel my way through it. Sit down now. If, 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 you're, if you're finished, sit down. A family was going to visit family for Christmas. It was in another state and a rather long distance. After a few hours, the little seven-year-old girl said to her daddy, Daddy, when we get to where we're going, will we be there? Well, the truth is that is a pretty good question concerning the journey of life. When I get to where I'm going, will I be there? When I get to where I'm going, is it going to be what I thought it was going to be? Is it going to be what I wanted it to be? Is it going to be satisfying in my life? When I get to where I'm going, will I be there? Another good question to ask as you journey through life is this. Does God journey with me? As I travel through life, as I live my life, does God participate with me? Now, of course, the deist says no. The deist says that God created this world. He sort of wound it up like a clock, put it in orbit, and withdrew. And God has no involvement with us in life. The fatalist, on the other hand, says, yes, God is involved with us. As a matter of fact, God not only is involved in our lives, but He orchestrates everything that happens to us, whether good or bad. Well, today we continue our series in the Old Testament, and maybe we will find some help in, uh, in our study today in the book of Isaiah, chapter 43, beginning in verse number 14. So look with me there. Isaiah, chapter 43, verse number 14. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, For your sake I have sent to Babylon, and will bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans, into the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way through the sea and a path through the mighty waters, who brings forth the chariot and the horse, the army and the mighty man. They will lie down together and not rise again. They have been quenched and extinguished like a wick. Do not call to mind the former things or ponder things of the past, Behold, I will do something new. Now it will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? I will even make a roadway in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. The beast of the field will glorify me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I have given waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people. The people whom I formed for myself will declare my praise." G.A. Studdard Kennedy was a preacher and a chaplain during World War I. One of his duties was to go to the hospitals to visit, to visit with the wounded soldiers. On one occasion, he was visiting with a soldier who had been wounded, and the soldier said to him, What I want to know is what is God like? When I am transferred to a new battalion... I want to know what the colonel is like. He bosses the show, and it makes a lot of difference to me what sort of chap he is. I want to know what the colonel of this world 
is like. You see, man has always been curious about the nature of God. What is God like? Now, you recall the story in the Old Testament when Moses met, the, met God at the burning bush, and God said to him, Moses, I want you to be the one to deliver my people out of bondage. They were in Egyptian bondage at that time. They were slaves to Egypt. And so God said to him, I want you to deliver my people. And the Bible says in Exodus 3.13, Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel... And I shall say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Now see, Moses' request here was, God, what are you like? You're telling me to go to the people of Israel and say to them that I am supposed to lead them out of bondage that God has sent me But what will I say to them about you? God, what are you like? That is the question that Moses was asking there at the burning bush. Philip essentially asked the same question, wanting to know what God was like in John 14, 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. So Philip said, God... Let me see you, Jesus. Let me see the Father. And if I understand Him, if I know what He is like, then that is enough for me. But that same question, what is God like? Do you ever ask that question? What is God like? We talk about God, but what is God like? The little boy said that God is greater than Batman, Superman, and Spider-Man all wrapped up in one. What is God like? Paul Tillich referred to Him as the ground of all being. You see, we have always been interested in what God is like. And in this passage of Scripture, Isaiah identifies God for us. He describes God for us. He says, first of all, that He is the Creator. Look at verse number 1. But now thus says the Lord, your Creator, O Jacob. The Davis Dictionary of the Bible defines creation as the act or operation of God, whereby He calls into existence what did not before exist. So, to create then means that I make something out of nothing. You've probably heard the old story about the devil coming to God one time and... and, uh, challenged him to a contest to see who is the real God, who is the real power in the universe. And God said, well, what do you suggest we do? He said, well, why don't we have a contest to see who is the real God? And God said, well, what kind of contest would you want to have? He said, I don't know, maybe maybe a contest of creation. If we created something, God said, okay. So the Lord reached down, he took some dirt from the ground, and he began to form it. And after a while, he he made a man, and he breathed into him, and man came alive, and so God created man. And Satan said, I can do that. So he reached down and got some dirt in his hands, and God said, oh, whoa, 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 wait just a minute. He said, well, what's wrong? He said, that's my dirt. Get your own dirt. (laughs) To create means that I create something out of nothing. Where there was nothing, I make something. And so the Bible says that God created the world. 
In Genesis chapter 1, verse number 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. As S.M. Lockridge said concerning creation, that God stepped out on nothing and made something. So God then created this world. The Scripture says that God created man. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image. And so God then created man. He created this world. He created man. And the Scripture says that God created Israel. Now look at verse number 15. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Matthew Henry said, He is the Creator of Israel that made them a people out of nothing. It is my belief, and has long been my belief, that you cannot explain Israel apart from God. That its very existence is a testimony of their unique relationship with God. The Bible says that God created Israel. Brian Harbour wrote, If God is the Creator, if all things are created by Him, then nothing in the world is worthy of our absolute loyalty. If God is the Creator, and if all things are created by Him, then nothing in the world is worthy of our ultimate contempt. So Isaiah here is identifying or defining God for us. What does he say? He says he is the creator. And then he says he is the redeemer in verse number 1b. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. My guess is Isaiah probably was thinking about those times when God had redeemed Israel. For instance, they were in Egyptian bondage, enslaved to Egypt, and God redeemed them out of that bondage. And then they were in exile to the Babylonians, and God redeemed them from that bondage. But there is a greater redemption, and that is when God has redeemed man from his sin. And the Scripture says in Titus 2, Christ Jesus, who gave Himself for us, that He might redeem us. You see, folks, God is the Redeemer. Do you want to know what God is like? God is the Creator. And He redeems His creation from their bondage to sin. But then Isaiah goes on and says this God is involved in verse number 1c. I have called you by name. You are mine. At a northern university, there was some graffiti on a wall that said, God is not dead. He just doesn't want to get involved. There are a lot of people who really live that way. I don't know if, I don't know that they would acknowledge that, but we would not verbalize that we do not believe God wants to be involved, but we live as if we don't believe God wants to be involved. But the truth is, God is involved in the lives of man. He was involved with Israel. Verse 16, Thus says the Lord, who makes a way through the sea and a path through the mighty waters. And so what Isaiah is saying here, he is, he is, he is calling them to remember God's involvement with His people. When they came to the Red Sea and the Egyptian army was behind them, the Red Sea was in front of them and they were trapped there. And God was involved. He parted the Red Sea. They went across on dry land. God was involved. 
when they were hungry in the wilderness, having nothing to eat, and they cried out to the Lord, and the Lord provided manna for them. God was involved. God is involved in the lives of His people. When the Lord called me to preach, He totally changed my life. That's not what I had intended to do. It's not what I was doing. But because of God's involvement in my life, He changed my life. He's, he was involved. Now, we, we believe that God is involved in our lives if we pray. Anyone who prays believes that God is involved, and that's the reason that we pray. If we did not believe that, then we would not pray. So as Isaiah describes God, he says that He is involved with man. Then he goes on to say that he is holy in verse number 3. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. There are two ideas that come with holiness. The first means to be unique, to be set apart. So holy then means to be set apart. If a person is holy, it means that they have been set apart from the world to God. They are set apart. You probably have some dishes at home that you could say, the dishes are holy because they are set apart for a purpose. They are trying. You only use them for special purposes. All right. So the Bible says then that we are to be holy, that God is holy. It means to be set apart for a special purpose. Now, it was Amos and Hosea who expanded the idea to include a moral component. But as Isaiah is describing God here, he says that he is holy. He is holy. Then he goes on from there and says that he is sovereign in verse number 11. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. King Louis XIV was considered to be a great king. When he died, the people gathered, his casket was put before the people, and there was one lone candle illuminating the casket. When the court preacher came to begin his message, he first walked over to the candle and snuffed it out. And in the darkness, he declared, God only is great. As you go on the journey of life, you need to ask the question, does God journey with me? Is God a part of my journey? And if he is, then what is God like? And that's what Isaiah is saying here. He tells us what God is like. That he is the creator, that he is the redeemer, that he is holy, that he is involved, and that he is sovereign. He goes on from there to the vision of God in verse number 19. Behold, I will do something new. Now it will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? I will even make a roadway in the wilderness rivers in the desert. Here God is saying, I'm going to do something new. Will you be aware of it? I'm going to do something, but will you be aware of it? The word aware that he uses means to know by seeing, to acknowledge, to, to understand. God says, I am going to do something. Will you be aware of it? You see, Israel oftentimes saw what was going on, but they were not aware of God's involvement. If you look at chapter 42, verse number 20, the prophet wrote, You have seen many things, but you do not observe them. Your ears are open, but none hears. In other words, concerning Israel, Isaiah says that you see that God is doing something, but you're not aware that it is God who's doing it. 
You remember when they sent the 12 spies into the land to spy out the promised land? The 12 spies came back. Ten of them said, we can't go in there. So there are giants in that land. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. There's no way that we can go in and take the, the land. Now, Joshua and Caleb, the other two, says they are but bread for us. Unfortunately, the people listened to the majority report. And the Bible says that they were depressed. They were, they were weeping that night. But the thing is, is that they saw something, but they did not see God's involvement. God had told them, I'm giving to you the promised land. They went in and spied out the promised land. But then when they came back, they said, there's giants over there. We can't do it. That's what Isaiah is talking about. They saw what was going on, but they did not see God's involvement in it. They, they didn't even see themselves as God saw them oftentimes. Israel saw themselves as disobedient. They were disobedient to the Lord. So they saw themselves as, as getting what they deserved. That they, that all the tragedy they faced, they deserved because of their disobedience. Let me ask you a question. Do you see yourself as God sees you? I asked myself that question this week. And, and the truth is, oftentimes, probably most of the time, I do not. Do you see yourself as God sees you? Well, maybe you would ask, well, how does God see me? How does God see me? Well, if you are a believer, the Bible says that you are not condemned. In fact, the Scripture says in John 3:17, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through Him. All right, so the Scripture says that Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but to save those who put faith in Him. That was His reason for coming. All right, now then, let's say then that you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, that you have trusted Him as your Lord and Savior, then the Bible says that you are not condemned. In Romans chapter 8, verse number 1, There is therefore now... No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you see yourself that way? If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that there is therefore now, right now, there is therefore now no condemnation. If you have trusted Jesus, the Bible says that you are not condemned. You see, God did not condemn us when we trusted Him, but the Bible says that He reconciled us. He made us right with Him. So the Scripture says in Colossians 1, 21 and 22, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, this is the way you were, engaged in evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If you have trusted Jesus, the Bible says that you have been forgiven. You are not condemned. You are reconciled. Do you see yourself that way? That's what the Scripture says. That if you have given your life to Jesus Christ... Now, now folks, please understand, I'm not saying if you have become a Baptist, because that's not what we're talking about here. I'm talking about committing your life to Jesus. If you have committed your life to Jesus, the Bible says that you are not condemned, but you have been reconciled. So then, we must see... As God sees. If we're going to have the vision of God, we must see as God sees. Do you see yourself as God sees you? Secondly, we see the future as God sees it. In verse number 19, 
he mentions rivers in the desert. Well, life may feel to you like a desert. But here's the thing that I want you to get hold of. Life might feel to you like a desert, but the Bible says that you are rivers in the desert. I was thinking about David after he sinned. We all know the sin of David. It could very well be that David would have said after that, you know, God is going to set me aside. God is not going to do anything with me. I have blown it. There's not anything that can be done. But God says, David, you are a river in the desert. And God saw him as being a great king. What about Rahab? Rahab could have seen her future as being a prostitute. That's what she was. That's what she had been. As she looked into the future, she might have seen herself continuing as a prostitute. But God says, but Rahab, you are a river in the desert. And when God looked at her future, he saw her as being in the genealogy of Jesus. Mary? Mary could have looked into the future and could have seen herself as being an insignificant, unimportant girl. But God said, Mary, you are a river in the desert. And he saw her as being the mother of his son. Simon Peter? Peter denied the Lord, and as he denied the Lord, he probably looked into the future and said, I have failed the Lord. God is finished with me. He has set me aside. But God said, Peter, you are a river in the desert. And he went on to be a martyr of the faith. Jenny Brand is with us today to... She has written a book concerning her father, Harry Dent, longtime member of our church. And as I, I thought about uh, Harry, I, I knew Harry. And, you know, back during the Watergate days, Harry could have thought, it is all over for me. It's, in, it, it, it's ended for me. God has nothing for me. But God said, Harry, you're a river in the desert. And I want you to preach the gospel which he did around the world. See, that's the thing that blesses me. Do you see your future as being a river in the desert? Uh, maybe you see desert all around you and you think that God can't use me and God, is, uh, he, God has been so disappointed in me, He can never use me. And what I see here is that God says, I want you to be a river in the desert. That's a vision of God as you look to the future. Being a river in the desert. Third thing is the provision of God in verse number one. But now, but now, regardless of the past, we are to live in the now. Sometimes, uh, you know, we look back and say, man, those were, those were good years back a hundred years ago or 75 years ago or whenever it was. Those were good years. Well, God didn't put you there. He put you here. We are here because God placed us here at this time to be His people now. See, you are here now. Oh, the times are tough. They are different than they used to be. Society's different. America's different. That's why you're here. God has you here now for today, not for 50 years ago. He has you here for today. Well, what does that mean to us? Well, it means uh, yesterday's victories will not sustain us no matter what they are. We can look to the past and celebrate the victories, but they will not sustain us. Uh, for instance, Israel could look to their past and relish the victories that they had when they came to Jericho. 
Oh, wasn't that a great day? You remember the great time they had there in Jericho when they marched around the city for seven days? They blew the ram's horns and the walls fell down. That's wonderful. But Jericho was the entrance to the promised land. It wasn't the end. They still had a ways to go. Whenever David fought Goliath and and Goliath was slain, that wasn't the end. There were other giants to slay. There, There were other victories to claim. That wasn't the end, even though it was significant. Our church can look at our history, and we are so grateful and we relish in the victories of the past. Let me tell you something. If the Lord tarries in His coming... This church still has so much to do. We have a wonderful history, but we have so much to do for the Lord Jesus. You see, the, the victories of the past will not sustain us today. Secondly, yesterday's failures must not possess us. Israel had a lot of failures in their history. God gave them a temple. They worshipped idols. God gave them the truth, and they lived a lie. God gave them the commandments. They lived as if they were suggestions. God prospered them, and they abused the poor. And yet God continued, and He continues to use His people because they are His chosen people. We have suffered failures in our lives, every one of us. But we must not allow the failures of yesterday to possess us today. As a nation, I look at our nation in my heart... As you know, because I've expressed it before, my heart is grieved whenever I look at our nation and, and, uh, and our moving away from the principles on which we were born. And we've been doing that for such a long time. I look at our nation, and, and we have rejected largely our spiritual heritage. I look at our families and see that they are falling apart. But you know what? Those failures of the past ought to be launching pads for revival because we desperately need it. The Scripture says in Isaiah 55, 7, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him. The failures that you've had in the past, let them be launching pads that get you closer to Jesus. Closer to Jesus. Third thing is that yesterday's faith can't satisfy We look back at those times of faith in our life, and they are wonderful. You remember when you were saved, when you trusted the Lord? You remember that? I do. You remember when you trusted the Lord? I mean, just in simple faith, you invited Jesus. You exercised your faith. You put faith in Him. You trusted Him to forgive you and save you. A great faith. Maybe it was when you got married and you thought, you know, God is leading me to this person and I'm going to marry this person and you exercised faith in that. Maybe it was concerning your profession or where you chose to go to school or something of that nature. But you can look back in your life and you see those times of great faith. But he says, but now, but now. Folks, the the, the faith that we exercised in the past is wonderful and significant and important. But it is foundational. The question I have for you this morning is, but what are you trusting God for today? 
If I were to ask you to share your testimony, probably most of you would stand up and begin to tell how God has done something in your life in the past. But what I'm asking you is, what's He doing now? What's He doing in your life right now? That you can say, this is what God is doing. He gives us a promise in verse number 2. As we travel, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched. What I believe God is saying here is that you're going to go through the waters, you're going to go through the fire, but He's going to be with you. As you go through the waters, as you go through the fire, His promise, I will be with you. Why? As you walk in faith today. Now, understand that we're walking in faith today. We're going to go through the waters. We're going to go through the fire. Why? For our satisfaction, He is going to be with us. Life, folks, live your life in God's will, and I can promise you that you're going to be pleased with it. When you get to where you're going, you're going to be glad you got there. If you're living your life within the Lord's will. So, it brings satisfaction to us and magnification to Him in verse 21. The people whom I form for myself will declare my praise. Let me conclude. We're on a journey. It's a journey of life. You are on a journey. Now, some of us are further down the road than others, but we are all on the journey of life. Every one of you. See things as God sees them. Learn to look through the eyes of God. And God will provide what you need. He has provided. He will provide. There was a pastor who had gone to Russia a number of years ago to preach there. He was impressed by the number of dedicated Christians that he met while he was in Russia. And in speaking to the pastor who was his host, he said, How have you been able to reach so many people? And the Russian pastor said, By the redeeming power of a righteous life. By the redeeming power of a righteous life. Folks, my challenge to you today is to understand that we can change our world through the redeeming power of a righteous life. So I challenge you to live righteously. Live righteously. God will be glorified and you will be satisfied. Our gracious Father in God, we come to a time of invitation. But I pray, Lord, your Holy Spirit has spoken to our hearts. Father, I pray for those who have never trusted Jesus that they might. For those, Father, who need to make commitments to you that they will. Lord, bless us as we travel this road of life. Help us to live our lives within your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, just a moment, we're going to stand and sing a hymn of invitation. Let me ask you on this journey, this is a part of, this would be a great time, would it not? For you to say, Lord, I'm going to be obedient to you right here in the invitation time. If you've never trusted Christ, would you today? We'll have staff here to pray with you to talk with you. If you're looking for a church home, our doors are open. We'd love to have you as a part of this family. Stand with me, please, as we stand together. The choir sings as they sing. You come. I'll greet you as you do.